Well, good morning. I do want to thank each of you who uh, have been praying for me. Uh, I did not think this time last week that I'd be standing upright this time this week. So I'm very thankful to be standing upright again. Uh, So thank you. And uh, I've learned that there's a lot of folks in our congregation who have dealt with back pain. So you all sympathize very well. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. As we look there this morning, we're going to, God willing, cover Mark chapter 7 all the way to Mark chapter uh, 8, verse 29. Uh, I've entitled the message, Wounded and Wrestling. Wounded and Wrestling. But let's go now to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help as we look at His Word together. Father, it is an amazing thing that You have been so kind to reveal Yourself There's nothing that in any way uh, conscribes you to have to do that. But Father, You have done that in Your grace and in Your kindness and in Your mercy. And let us not fool ourselves to think that if it were not for Your kindness that we would not know things true about You. Lord, the only reason we know and understand You is because You have revealed Yourself And Father, thank You that You have revealed Yourself so pointedly, so perfectly in the person, the revealed Word of God, Jesus Christ, who we now celebrate at this time of year is the Word made flesh among us. Father, thank You that You have shown us Yourself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a man, yet God, And yet, Father, thank You that You have been so kind as to explain who this revealed One is in the revelation of Your written Word. And so, Father, would You be kind this morning to Your people as we gather around Your Word. Lord, let us not trust in anything else to understand this person of Jesus, but what You have told us in Your Word. And I pray... God, I'm jealous that Your Word would teach us, Your people this morning, who this Jesus is. And I pray that Jesus is revealed and the text would be worshipped, hallowed, loved, and adored among Your people this morning. I pray, Father, that there may be folks here this morning who have never wrestled, never been wounded, by Jesus, I pray this morning that Your Spirit would let Jesus Christ wound them and that they would wrestle with Him this morning and that You, Father, would bring salvation in the name of Christ. And Father, I pray that, that believers, we would walk away strengthened in our love, in our commitment, in our desire to follow this courageous bold leader. I pray for that, Lord. Thank You. Thank You, thank You, thank You for Your Word. It is a treat. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've tracked what's uh, going on and trending in many college campuses, university settings, then you're probably familiar with two terms. One term, microaggression, and another term, trigger warnings. Now, microaggression 
These are small actions or words that on the face of them have no malicious intent, but are thought to cause violence nonetheless. For example, by many campus guidelines, this, this is true, it is microaggression to ask an Asian American or a Latino American, where were you born? Because that implies they're not a real American. You have, you have committed microaggression. In trigger warnings, these are alerts that professors are now taught to give to their classes so that certain parts of the coursework, uh, they can warn them, might cause an emotional response. So, for example, if you're a literature teacher and you're teaching F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, then you are taught to give some trigger warnings to your students that this might uh, I lead them to uh, have remembrances of domestic situations or if they've ever felt misogynized that now uh, this trauma might reoccur. Um, now this has actually gone so far that there are comedians that have actually boycotted college campuses as they've said honestly uh, I don't go to college campuses because they cannot take a joke. Um, uh, actually, one professor who actually wrote an article, but he did so in a pseudonym because he was afraid to print his real name, afraid of the backlash, uh, wrote this. He said, I'm a very liberal professor, but my liberal students today terrify me. Um, well, you know, I've often thought it would be hard for the gospel to get a fair hearing on a university campus, but I'm ever more convinced that this reason and reason alone would make it unlikely. As you will see in our text this morning, on this text, in this passage, I would have to warn you of some microaggression and give you some trigger warnings as the text this morning might trigger misogyny, feelings of misogyny, racism, degrading, self-esteem deflation, and all of this will come from the mouth of the one we consider the only perfect human to ever live. Two weeks ago, Pastor Chad uh, walked us through uh, chapter 6 and 7. There, Jesus was in the predominantly Jewish area of Galilee. And there He sent His disciples out. And while there were some encouraging reports about how that went, there was also a trajectory of hardship that was shown as we saw what happened in the tragic beheading of John the Baptist. Still, Jesus made perfectly clear in the amazing miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, perhaps up to 25,000, that Jesus alone can provide for all the Jewish people all that they need. He is God as it showed Him creating ex nihilo, bread out of nothing. And the focus, though, on the Jews there ended in a negative tone, as Jesus turned to the Pharisees and said, what defiles you is that which is within. Well, this week, he's going to turn, Mark is going to turn us to a Gentile audience. Now, now realize that for the Jews, though they may have had some type of place for a Messiah to go visit Gentiles, it would have been simply in wrath, in judgment, they, they had 
Although the prophets have a place, the prophetic books have a place for a Messiah to visit the Gentiles in salvation, the leaders of that day had no such category. And yet you're going to see in Mark chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus is going to go to the Canaanite areas of Tyre and Sidon. These are pagan lands. They're full of Gentiles. They are traditionally enemies of the people of God. In fact, even today, the tensions between Israel and Lebanon, which is where Tyre and Sidon are, that is, modern-day Lebanon would make up the regions of Tyre and Sidon, they're already still present, these tensions, as you think of skirmishes between places like the West Bank and the Golan Heights. Jesus would have left the area of the West Bank, traversed across the Golan Heights, and headed to the seaports of Tyre and then Sidon, two seaports that still exist today. So verse 24 of chapter 7 of Mark. And from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So from there he left the Jewish area and he went to Tyre and Sidon, the Gentile area. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now evangelicals are often uh, often refer to salvation as something like accepting Jesus into one's heart. And while I, I don't think that's a completely wrong-headed way to talk about it, I at least hope to show you through this text why it might be problematic. And I only want to focus on one problem. Now, I, I won't discuss that it's not used anywhere in Scripture, that it was nowhere found in the early church that the reformers would not have understood what it meant and that it completely is devoid of corporate commitment. Those are problems I'll let someone else talk about. Anyway, um, I want to focus on the problem of passivity. That is, the way of understanding salvation is accepting Jesus into one's heart. I want you to see that the passive nature of this phrase could be problematic. This language of accepting Jesus into one's heart, I'm afraid, makes Jesus seem like a Facebook post that's just waiting to be liked. Or a review waiting to get five stars. I want you to look. I mean, honestly look at this encounter between Jesus and this woman. And you honestly tell me if the best way to describe it is her accepting Jesus into her heart. First, see how Mark tells us that she has to find Jesus. Mark honestly admits that Jesus was not looking to be found. Read with me there. He entered a house. You tell me how to take this. He entered a house and he did not want anyone to know. 
Now what that makes me think is that he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know. That's what that makes me think. This isn't someone who does not want to be found. Second, she comes and she falls at his feet. So you got Jesus in a house where he doesn't want to be found. You got a woman throwing herself at the feet of Jesus. And notice, there is no mention in this text at this point of him even acknowledging her. So you got Jesus Christ standing in a house where he doesn't want to be found with a woman at his feet. And the text doesn't even say he yet acknowledges her. Third, we are told of all of the obstacles that stood between her and a conversation with this popular Jewish teacher. Mark is intentional when he stacks the deck against this woman. It's amazing how he writes this. Look at verse 26. The woman, strike one, was a Gentile. Sorry, this is where the trigger warnings come in. Was a Gentile, strike two. And a Syrophoenician, big, strike three. Now recall, many Jewish men began their day, I am not kidding, with a daily prayer, blessed are you God for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So you have this Gentile woman who whose people are traditional enemies to the Jews at the feet of Jesus and still nothing from Jesus. Mark is so intentional how he writes this. Fourthly, now the woman begins begging Jesus. Look at it. She begs him to expel a demon from her daughter. Still nothing for Jesus. Fifthly, Jesus finally speaks. And would you listen to what Jesus says when He finally addresses this lady? By the way, you will probably not find this response in your Jesus children's Bible. He said to her, Let the children be fed first. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That came from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those words. Microaggression, beware. Okay, realize that Jesus responded to her with a parable. Why does that matter? Recall what Jesus has said about parables. They are not cute stories to help teach, are they? No, 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 no. Remember what He said in Mark 4.11. He told His disciples, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those who are outside, everything is in what? Parables. So inasmuch as He just responds to her in, in a parable, He has conscribed her to be a what? An outsider. Just by using a parable. Forget the content of the parable. But in case she doesn't get that, the thrust of the parable, I think, makes the point. He calls her a dog. Now, I just got back from India, so I really don't need the commentaries to help me understand here what Jesus meant by dogs. 
When Jesus speaks of dogs, he's not speaking of your Labrador retriever with a scarf on ready for the Christmas family pick. That's not what he's talking about. I never once, and Jennifer can understand this, I never once when I was in India felt any temptation in while I was walking around the streets to bend down and, and pet a dog or, or hug them because they are garbage-eating mongrels, most of them, right? You don't want to touch them. They're, you don't want to be around them. Jesus understood this. So keep that in mind. Wrap all of that around it. And Jesus says to this woman, I came for the children, the Jews. Why would I answer you a dog? <laughs> I, I just don't think this sounds to me like a person who is hoping to be accepted. Do you? Now, I push this point because I desperately want us to know and worship the Jesus as presented in the Bible. I don't know if it's pulpit appropriate to put it this way, but that's the best way I can make the point. Listen, Jesus of Nazareth as presented in the Bible is not a pansy. Unfortunately, as a result of multiple factors in our day, Jesus has been overly feminized and the strong, courageous leader He is has been downplayed. I don't think it's a small deal. I think it's a big deal. I personally, as a follower of Christ, have had to work through this as a man. I realized I had a lot of trouble relating to Jesus. And it's not because I was relating to the Jesus of the text. The more I have learned of the actual Jesus of Scripture, the easier it has been for me to relate to Him as a man. I admire Him. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think many men today, many men, do not embrace the fullness of following Jesus because they are trying to follow a version of Jesus that does not exist. Men want to follow a courageous leader. Not one of my friends doesn't like the movie Braveheart. We love the story of William Wallace who fought, bled, and died. And unfortunately... Many men never place Jesus in a category like this. Instead, they see Him as walking around in sandals and a bathrobe, skipping through the meadows, playing with children. But He's presented in the Gospels as anything less than strong and courageous. He's consistently shown as confident and calculated, bold and brazen, fearless and firm. He's not the kitty cat of Capernaum. He's the Lion of Judah. And so, this Jesus is not waiting, hoping to be accepted into this woman's heart like a politician waiting for the latest tabloid calculation. Instead, this woman has grabbed the tail of a lion and she has a wrestling match on her hands. Oh, but listen to how this story continues. It's unbelievable. I hope this becomes one of your favorite stories in all the Gospels, if it's not already. Verse 28, But she answered him, <laughs> this is a, unreal, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
So Jesus answers her in a parable. And parables are made for the outsiders. Lest, Jesus' own words, they should turn and be forgiven. That's exactly out of the mouth of Jesus. I give them parables to the outsiders, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Look it up, Mark 4.12. How does she answer Jesus? She answers in a matching what? Parable. (laughs) It's not real. Not only does this Gentile pagan woman, the first person in all of the Gospel of Mark to understand any parable of Jesus, but she responds in a parable. Jesus says, I speak to the outsiders in parables, lest they turn and be forgiven. This woman says, I'll see your parable, and Lord, I would love to turn and be forgiven. This woman is told that Jesus has come first for the children, to which she is compared a dog. She doesn't argue the justice of it. She doesn't argue the fairness of it. She instead says, but surely there is some leftovers for the dogs. Look at his response. 29, he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Verse 30, She went home and found the child lying in the bed, and the demon is gone. Jesus basically says, Dear child, absolutely. I want to submit to you. This is big. This is not an abnormal account of salvation. But this is the normative way people come to faith in Jesus. This is a genuine conversion experience. And the normative, genuine conversion experience today will have all the aspects in this story present. Look with me. A desperate call of need. Like this woman was desperate and helpless, a person who truly is converted will find themselves helpless before God. A wounding of pride and self. Like Jesus wounded this woman's pride, so the law of God will wound a lost man so he sees himself rightly diagnosed as a sinner before a holy God. A faith that wrestles with mercy of God like this woman would not let go when wounded, but she banked on the grace and mercy of God. A converted sinner will bank all their hope and trust on the mercy and grace of Jesus. And an amazing bestowing of grace. Like Jesus responded with full deliverance of this woman's child, so also a converted sinner will find full salvation as God bestows unmerited kindness and mercy. So, faith wrestles with Jesus. Faith will wrestle with Jesus. And you see that as this woman wrestled with Jesus. Like Jacob, you remember Jacob? What does he do in in Genesis 32 at Penuel? He wrestles with God. So genuine faith wrestles. Jesus wounds our pride. He dismantles our self-sufficiency. He wrecks 
our idols. He ruins the false, weak foundations we have built for our lives like the, the man who built his house upon the sand. There's no room for high-strutting, chest-thumping Christians because each of us, like Jacob, has had our hip dislocated as we wrestled with God in conversion and we come away the most joyous limpers ever. Faith, genuine faith, while wounded by Jesus, believers continue to wrestle with Jesus. Next point. I want you to see that Jesus is willing to save outsiders and is sufficient to provide for all of their needs. Alright, so verse 31. And then he returned from the region of Tyre and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the region of Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was, a, who was deaf and a speech in, with a speech impediment or yours might be mute or could not talk. And they begged him to lay hands on him, verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking upon heaven, he sighed and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, his tongue released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged him to tell no one. But the more he charged him, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he does all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So here, Jesus takes a rather circuitous path. It's like a horseshoe. He goes north from Tyre to Sidon. Then he goes across and he comes back down in, into the Decapolis. He lands, this is key, into another Gentile area. It's described as the Decapolis. It would be in modern day Jordan, or how, depending how far south he went, it could be Syria. Verse 32 is very important as it describes the man brought to Jesus as both deaf and mute. Now, the word mute is very important. It's only used one other time in all of Scripture. We can find it in the Greek translation of the Hebrew in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, where it's promised that when the Messiah comes... He will open the tongue, will loose the tongue of the mute, and the mute will sing for joy. Now, it's not a coincidence that the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 35, right prior to that, promise that those in the land of Lebanon, exact same area, they will see the glory of the Lord. So as Jesus performs this miracle among the Gentiles, look at what Jesus as they look at what Jesus has done and how do they respond? They say, He has done all things well. Doesn't that sound familiar? Does that not sound like what God said in Genesis when He looked at what He had done and He said it was all what? Good. So Jesus, He shows that God is willing to call the Gentiles, these dogs, he reaches out to them and they are allowed to wrestle with Jesus. And we see that although they are deaf and mute, He is able to heal them. He is able to save them. But we're also going to see 
that He also is able to provide for all that they need. Look at Mark 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He called His disciples to Him and He said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come a far way. And His disciples answered Him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And He took the seven loaves and, get, and, and having given thanks, He broke them and gave them to His disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish and having blessed them, He said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And He sent them away. So as you hear this story, you're probably thinking to yourself, now this sounds pretty familiar. Uh, it sounds very similar to what uh, Pastor Chad preached in chapter 6. Well, it is similar, but there are some differences. The biggest difference is the setting. This doesn't happen in a Jewish area. This happens in a Gentile area. And we get that because verse 1 of chapter 8 says, in those days, connecting this to the passage before it, which happened in the Decapolis, a Gentile area. Another difference is that there is no boy's lunch. The crowd is described as only 4,000 as opposed to 5,000 men. So it could have been up to 20,000 in the prior account. So this is a much smaller one. But the theme is the same. You have a huge crowd of hungry people. Jesus makes bread out of nothing. That's ex nihilo. Only God can do that. And not just enough bread, but He makes more, way more than enough. Okay, just stop and think of all these texts together. It's really beautiful what Mark is doing. You have Gen uh, Jesus. He's heading into a Gentile area right after being rejected by the Jews. Okay? He's then confronted by a Gentile of sincere faith who he tells, and now wait a second, why should the children's bread go to the dog? She responds and says, but let the dogs eat the what? The leftovers. And guess what? After the feeding of the 5,000, there were what? Leftovers. Jesus then heals a man in a way to show that his salvation has come to the Gentiles. Then he turns around and performs the, a miracle of providing all, of all things what? Bread for the Gentiles. Point, the Messiah has come even to the Gentiles and those with sincere faith who wrestle and are wounded, even they can be fed as the children of Abraham. So, uh, the picture of genuine faith here is a grabbing a hold of Jesus for dear life. Let me say it again. The picture of genuine faith is shown 
in the gospel is a grabbing a hold of Jesus for dear life. And if that is sincere faith, you're getting ready to see insincere faith. Because insincere faith wagers that Jesus must grab a hold of you. Insincere faith wagers that Jesus must prove Himself true. Let me show you that in verse 10. And immediately He got in the boat with the disciples and He went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now Dalmanutha would be a district of Jewish territory. He's out of the Gentile territory and now He's back into the Jewish territory. This is Remember how He was greeted in the Gentile territory. Remember the Syrophoenician woman, the sincere faith. That's that's the first encounter we see with Jesus when He gets in the Gentile territory. Now look at the response to Jesus when He gets back to the Jewish territory. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven to test Him. And He sighed deeply in His spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The leaders want Jesus to prove Himself to them. Show us a sign, they demand. Now, that's absurd. It's absurd as He, right before His trip to the Gentiles, He just fed over 20,000 people. He walked on water and He healed a bunch of people. But more absurd is that these should have been the children eating the bread. When you compare this response to the response of the woman, it's as despicable as it is sad. They cannot get over themselves while this woman could not get over Jesus, friend, which describes you? Are you so busy getting over yourself that you have yet to be wounded by Jesus? Are you so busy getting over yourself that you have yet to be wounded by Jesus? There's really, really good news. He overcomes even our poor response and faith. Praise God, this account continues. Verse 13. And He left them, got in the boat, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring... You don't even have to guess. You could know by now what it's going to be, right? It's going to be bread, right? They've forgotten to bring bread. Nothing in the Gospels is just coincidence. I'm telling you, it's the Word of God. All of it's there for a reason. They've forgotten to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Chance that. And He cautioned them saying, just remember, it's so funny how Mark puts this. So here's the situation. They're in the boat and they only got one thing of bread. Response from Jesus, response from disciples. What's on Jesus' mind? What's on the disciples' mind? All right. 
And he cautioned them, saying, this is Jesus' response, he sees the one loaf of bread. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Respond to the disciples. And they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Listen to this. Having eyes you do not see. Interesting. Having ears you do not hear. And you do not remember. When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And said twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of break, broken pieces did you take up? And said, seven. He said, do you not yet understand? <laughs> they get in the boat and all they can think about is, man, what are we going to do with just one loaf of bread? <laughs> he gets in the boat and he sees the bread and he thinks, oh, Father, don't let the leaven of the Pharisees get into their hearts and spread. All you can think about is how sick the response is from the Pharisees. Then he turns around and he calls them blind and deaf. And folks, let me tell you, that is really tender. That is really tender. Why? Because Jesus had just healed a deaf man. He just put His fingers in His ears and the man who could not hear could now hear. And I want you to see what follows as the very next story. It's tender. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to Him a blind man. And begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he'd spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, what do you know? Jesus chastises His disciples for being deaf and blind. He had just healed a deaf man. As to say to the disciples, you're deaf, but I can heal deaf people. You're blind. And He turns around and what does He do? He heals a blind man. Jesus wounds them. But unlike the Pharisees, who run away mad and contriving, the disciples do what disciples do. They keep following. Wounded, yes, but they wrestle on. They follow. Verse 27. Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, well, you are the Christ. This is the climax 
of the entire book of Mark. You just read it. From the mouth of Peter, we get the clear articulation, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus wounds them, but He lets His disciples wrestle. And He kindly, mercifully, unstops their ears and opens their eyes. And notice, when He healed the blind man, did you see that He does it in stages? First the man sees nothing. Then He sees men walking around like trees. And finally He sees rightly. So it is with the disciples. On the boat you may see they're seeing almost nothing. Now from Peter, we see that he sees some things, but it won't take long. You're going to find out even that's a bit hazy. But there's coming a day when he's going to see it clearly and perfectly. They are wounded, but they wrestle. And Jesus Christ is amazing in His grace. Friend, where are you with Jesus of Nazareth? This Lion of Judah is not waiting to be accepted like a lost cat hoping for a warm bed. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Every knee will bow before Him. True some doubt, but realize that will only last a bit longer. It is only temporary. Soon everyone will be certain about how strong and courageous This king really is. I'm telling you, it is better to be wounded now and bow the knee than to be forever cast out as his enemy. The Bible says that God is a holy and perfect, just God. The Bible wounds every lost man by diagnosing us as a sinner deserving to be cast out forever. It wounds our pride. It does away with our self-righteousness. But the Gospel, the good news, says that Jesus Christ has come even to those who are not children of Abraham. And He is willing and able to save us and provide everything you need with more left over. You must respond with acceptance you got to grab a hold of Jesus as if He is your only hope, as if He is all you have. Let's pray.